The Geopolitics and Empire podcast is joined by Dr. Geoffrey Gresh, who is Professor of International Security Studies at the College of International Security Affairs at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. I do need to make the following disclaimer that the views expressed today by Dr. Gresh are his personal views and do not represent the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, and the National Defense University. We'll be discussing his excellent new book called, quote, To Rule Eurasia's Waves. The new great power competition at sea. And quote. Uh, how are you doing, Dr. Gresh? Yeah, great. Uh, thank you so much for for hosting me, and I uh, greatly look forward to the conversation. Yeah, thanks for being here. And it's been a while since I've had uh, academics uh, of your stature on the podcast to talk deep uh, geopolitics. Um, so I'll have to do this more regularly. Uh, this may be the last uh, podcast episode uh, of the year, so I hope uh, listeners enjoy it. Now. Eurasia is on the rise. Uh, I would know. I've been living smack in the geographic center of Asia the last few years. Uh, there's the Russia-China dragon bear that's all the rage. Uh, the talk of Mackinder's nightmare coming to pass. Uh, that of Eurasia uh, wakening and taking hold of the world island. Or as Spikeman put it, who rules Eurasia controls the destinies uh, of the world. You also quote in your book, Sir Walter Rally from, I believe, the 17th century, who said, quote, whoever commands the sea commands trade uh, and the riches of the world and consequently the, the world itself, end quote. So in your book, you've also said that Russia and China are well positioned to unify and control the strategic sea lanes of communication that surround Eurasia uh, or what many call the world island. And so, you know, the competition that has emerged in recent years is taking place across maritime Eurasia between the continent's main rivals, China, Russia, and India, which is what, what you focus on in your book, uh, as they vie to achieve great power status and exp expand beyond their regional seas. So um, could you set the table for us, so to speak, introduce us to this idea and provide the context of, of what's happening in Eurasia and with these uh, rising great powers? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think it's a good I'm glad that you referred to, uh, you know, Sir Halford, Mackinder, as well as Nicholas Speakman. And of course, the third person to add in there from a maritime perspective is um, Mahan, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan. And so I think, and I do, I started giving a geopolitical perspective on Eurasia. And as we know, Mackinder uh, looked at you know, Eurasia and, you know, being in Kazakhstan, you, you, you appreciate the perspective being in really the, the heartland, the territorial. Um, and, and of course, Mackinder was looking at Eurasia as the world island, as you say, but very much from a, you know, interior heartland perspective. And then if you look at Nicholas Speakman, um, who was writing Second World War, he tried to put it in perspective of, of looking at rising uh, Nazi Germany. I think he wrote his some of his main works in 19, 1942, specifically looking at Imperial Japan and saying, we need to focus on the rim lands of Eurasia. And by projecting from the sea to the land, then that's the way to get into the interior. But the interesting thing about them is that neither really dealt with the Arctic. And as we know, the Arctic is melting. And obviously, it's debatable uh, in the sense that how fast is it going to melt? But the reality is that it's melting. And so that's going to pave the way uh, faster, slower, uh, but it's happening for Russia in particular to really take advantage. So what I'm attempting to do really in the book is to look at not necessarily from the Mackinder perspective, but look at it from Speakman as well as Mahan, who talked about controlling the sea lanes, projecting sea power, uh, this is the way to kind of the great power status. And he was looking, you know, at the British specifically. And so with the melting of the Arctic, I'm trying to show that we need to look at both the Western periphery of Eurasia and that of Western Europe and Russia descending down increasingly, uh, being much more of a spoiler in recent years, as well as in the East. And then, of course, the valuable sea lands of communication that traverse the high north. But at the same time, uh, China being very much uh, playing an increased role. Of course, East Asia is its regional seas and territorial seas. Uh, but seeing Russia and China, uh, as I point out, I pointed out recently another article looking at their joint sea exercises, for example, which are pretty fascinating to see. In 2017, for example, Russia and China conducting for the first time 
joint sea exercises in the Baltic Sea. Uh, in 2015, they were in the Mediterranean Sea. So seeing that making for, for the case of China, pretty long route, uh, and that, that takes its own logistical efficiency um, and its power projection capabilities. And so what I really wanted to look at is how are the, the sea lanes, how is the maritime competition changing as now we see the Arctic kind of, you know, release what, what Mackinder and Speakman saw as this fourth wall, which is a big ice wall now coming down. Yeah, that, that was one of my uh, questions, I guess, towards the end. But since you mentioned it uh, on the issue uh, of the Arctic, it's really becoming an interesting place. Uh, we've previously done, I think, one episode on the Arctic where we spoke with Klaus Dodds. Um, and as you said, the Arctic is opening up, uh, as well as the technology that's allowing, I think, countries to go further into the Arctic um, to penetrate further into the Arctic. I, I believe countries like Russia and China are building these uh, nuclear icebreakers like crazy. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, China has is on its second icebreaker and has declared a uh, polar Silk Road. So you know China, from where China is, it's reaching far out in, into the north. And in your book, you also mentioned that the U.S. seems uh, absent in, in in the Arctic. So maybe if you could just add a, um, another final taken what's happening there in the arctic yeah absolutely so for right now the in the arctic absolutely as I, I put the last chapter it's the you know the the future frontier and 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 russia certainly controlling or having about 50 percent or 50 plus percent of the geography of the arctic really stands to gain in pretty significant ways more importantly there are two main ways to traverse the arctic through the northwest passage which primarily goes through Canada from Alaska, if you think about it from U.S. perspective, through Canada. There's still a lot of icebergs. It's still pretty treacherous. The northern sea route, however, primarily traverses through Russia's territorial seas. And this is where China and Russia have increasingly undergone, uh, you know, more study, investment in icebreakers, as you say, and specifically, Russia currently has about 40 icebreakers, and so far surpasses any other power. The United States only has about, they say on paper, three, really two, but the reality is about one in operation. Uh, and not, you know, I think there, there is a desire to see more investment down the road, but for right now, as an Arctic power, we're, we're not as involved um, compared to certainly Russia and a growing power of China. Now, you mentioned the Polar Silk Road. I think more of a, uh, you know, again, projecting, signaling that it wants to become more of, um, you know, important player. And that's why it's joining increasingly forces with Russia. But for right now, you know, as I point out, one of the first main points of the book is to look at geoeconomics. And there's so many valuable resources up in the Arctic. Just to give a, you know, quick snapshot, approximately 90% of Russia's natural gas reserves are in the Arctic. About 60% of the oil, oil reserves are in the Arctic. In addition, there are many you know, wealthy er, rare earth metals such as um, diamonds and nickel and palladium. So Russia, they're just, just a you know, bounty of riches to really take advantage of. And for that matter too, China of trying to invest They've begun to get some of the natural gas out. It hasn't been as successful as possible, um, but they're certainly testing the waters, if you will. And in addition to that, really sending ships over the Northern Sea Route. And this past year, it's, it's important to note that the Northern Sea Route was open for around 120, 121 days consecutively. And this is the largest uh, span of time that has ever been open. And certainly that's going to continue, uh, you know, moving forward at a pretty, you know, much, much stronger rate. And it's a vicious cycle, right? Because the more um, ships you have traversing the high north, uh, the certainly there, there's certain pollution and the ships, um, you know, exhaust, if you will, is going to, you know, speed up, keep the waters, you know, contribute to the ice melt um, as there's more industrialization. But for right now, uh, you know, mainly... Uh, as I like to say, fish and oil, and I haven't mentioned the fish part here, that's important too, around 240 species of fish. And as the waters warm, these fish uh, and other seafood species are moving up to the north. 
again, just rich in, in not only the oil and gas and other rare earth minerals, but also fisheries. So it's an area that, uh, you know, certainly we need to continue to look at. And the last point back to the United States, there has been a growing interest um, in the United States. And I think the two senators of Alaska have really tried to push um, various agencies to look more at what they can do in the Arctic. Um, but for the moment, it's more of a kind of economic game. And so you mentioned uh, as well, so geoeconomics geo and China and a large part of your book focuses on China, which I mean, obviously, you know, China is the big player, big rising player now. And so we see uh, China transforming its geoeconomic investments, as you point out in your, in your book, into geostrategic uh, as, assets such as forward operating uh, bases and ports that they're building uh, in Africa, in, in um, Djibouti, in, in uh, Gwandar, in Pakistan, uh, you know, along the Indian Ocean via their string of pearls. Uh, and so these commercial Chinese ports could be switched into, I guess, military ports uh, at any future moment. Uh, China and Greece uh, bought up 67% of the Piraeus ports. And then subsequently, uh, you go into detail uh, about this in your book, where once they got that port in Greece, they brought in lower wage uh, Chinese nationals, which then led to the decimation uh, of the European workforce. And then, you know, then they're raising port fees, which then hurts the European uh, ship uh, industry. And so, um, uh, so what are your th thoughts on, you know, China's expansion into, into Europe, into Africa uh, and elsewhere? Yeah, so it's a good good question, and I think, you know, it's true as I as I point out that first and foremost, you know, these Chinese state-run, state-led corporations are leading the way uh, with, you know, certainly the Maritime Silk Road, but also if you think about the shipping industry in general, is all about bottom line. Uh, you know, just to go briefly back to the Arctic for a second. By traversing the sea lanes in the high north, you're shaving off, you know, around 30% of your voyage. And that could save on a one-way trip around $500,000. So that's, that's significant cash. Now, if you come through the southern routes, you know, again, Costco shipping is one of the behemoths, growing behemoths in the shipping industry. And so they've been really at the forefront of, of trying to fortify, strengthen, and invest in a lot of smaller supply logistics, shipping logistics firms uh, that is emerging into a, a really much more robust maritime trade network on the high seas. And then in turn that, you know, can, can evolve into what you rightfully point out is the security element of it, right? So the economics, and this is not different from what other powers have done, certainly, but it makes sense that then the security arm or the naval arm is going to have to follow the economic interests. So I'll give another example. In 2011, uh, the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. At the time, there were approximately 30 or 36,000 Chinese foreign nationals who were working in Libya. How do you get out 36,000 Chinese foreign nationals, you can't fly them out. I mean, you could, but it would take a fleet of, of planes. You, you really, it's the, the most efficient way is to bring in ships. And of course, at the time, they were still kind of, and they've been involved in Djibouti with the anti-piracy operations. They didn't formally establish a military base in Djibouti until 2017. So we're winding the clock six, six years, 2011. They just didn't have the network in place. And so they look to that event of saying, we never want to be caught flat-footed like this again. And in fact, during that uh, episode, they had to reach out to the Greeks who then uh, rented them uh, cruise vessels or other ships they could then bring in and bring the Chinese foreign nationals on and then get them out to safety. Um, so it gets at how, you know, this kind of evolution, although I always like to put in perspective too, the Chinese currently only have one overseas base. The Japanese, same thing. They also established a base in Djibouti. That's why Djibouti is a really fast, if you ever get the opportunity, uh, much warmer, uh, similar to Mexico uh, than Kazakhstan, of course. Djibouti being a really fascinating um, spot I had the opportunity to travel to. And you see all the uh, you know foreign powers. The French, of course, is a former colony. 
the United States, of course, um, Camp Lemunier is one of our largest bases in Africa. China, of course, has a base. Japan has a base. The Italians have a base. The Germans are there. The UK is there. There's such a high presence because it sits at the Bab el-Nadev, which is an important maritime choke point. But by establishing a base, this then gives China an important jumping off point into Europe. Uh, but to back up what I wanted to kind of put the threads together is to say, to put it in perspective, in the sense that the United States has approximately 500, you can, it's all about how you define the bases, right? So we could get into the debate about how you define bases, but according to the latest congressional base structure report of 2018, I think there was something like 512 bases, main operating bases. Uh, certainly others look and say it's a much larger number, but compared, you know, it, it's, there's a very big stark difference. Um, so I think, you know, for those who are concerned about, well, China's going to uh, have another base here or there, it's very small beginnings right now. But I think where China's very smart is that to the point, as you mentioned too, in Piraeus, uh, you know, there's a dual use nature and that's the same what happened to Djibouti. Um, you know, when I interact with colleagues and counterparts, I'd ask, you know, what, what's going on in Djibouti? Oh, well, it's a logistics and supplies base, supply base. Makes sense, right? And then, of course, in 2017, opening a fully established um, uh, naval base. And you mentioned Guadar. That's the kind of next speculation that the Chinese might do something. Right now, it's debatable as to how successful uh, you know, CPAC uh, or the, the corridor for Pakistan or China-Pakistan economic corridor that goes up through the heartland of Pakistan uh, into Xinjiang province. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of debate on that front. But I think having Gwadar at the very least as a link to potentially use down the road, it's not a bad, bad option from a Chinese perspective. And since we were uh, just now comparing, you know, U.S. foreign military bases and Chinese, I, I'm not sure. I think the Russians have eight or, or something or six. Um, but I don't remember, recall the numbers. But do you, uh, do you think China by 2030 is going to outnumber or, or maybe they have already? I, I can't remember the numbers in terms of um, naval vessels. Do you think China will surpass uh, the U.S.? So I think, you know, there, there's a lot of good research on on what I call ship counting, right? So, you know, there, there's certainly a focus on how many ships do you have? And currently, you're, you're correct, the Chinese have around 300 um, ships, they want to expand to 330 or so in the next decade, I believe. The United States has around 289, I think, by recent counts, and they just put out a study where they project where they want to build, you know, up to like 500 over the next several decades. But as I pointed out too, I mean, as we know, in any defense planning, you have to plan out a decade or two. And so I think for the United States and others, for that matter, Russia's in the same boat, in, all countries are in the same boat, in that we have yet to see or see the dust settle from, from COVID-19. Right. So I think there are going to be significant financial constraints. So then you go back to how many ships do you have? I think the better question to ask is what is what do you need to prevent against? And what is what sort of ships do we need in peacetime? And what sort of ships and also other capabilities, naval technology, other capabilities that we might need in wartime? And so that I think is going to be the critical question. And I think. You know, if you look at a power like uh, like India, which wants to and is in the process of developing now the second um, aircraft carrier, it wants to do a third. It's been very much hamstrung a lot by bureaucracy and inefficiencies. Um, but I think countries are going to have to adapt because these big platforms like an aircraft carrier are enormously expensive and take so long to build and develop. So that's going to be something to balance for not only the United States, but other powers too. Yeah, your book is, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great resource. It covers a lot. I mean, there's a lot in there. We can, you can, 
we, we can go for hours discussing and jumping off to different points. But now, since you mentioned uh, India, let, let's let's go there uh, because you know it's India has joined the the Western led uh, Quad, uh, and it seems that India has chosen to stand uh, with the West instead of participating more closely with China's uh, Belt and Road, uh, uh, as you mentioned, CPEC or even R the. RCEP, which I think it, it uh, didn't uh, wish to join. Uh, but in your book, you also mentioned that um, some say it can straddle between the multipolar world and the U.S. Uh, alliance. And you, you detail in your book that it feels threatened and surrounded by China, but it also seems to be lagging behind in its ability to catch up to China uh, in terms of the naval race and other geoeconomic and geostrategic uh, endeavors. And I, I guess this is also largely an economic issue. They don't have the funds like China. So uh, what can you tell us about India? Yeah, it's, uh, India is a really fascinating case. And I think the India is, you know, as you know, India has a long tradition of being part of the non-aligned movement. And even to this day, it's very hesitant about jumping full hog into, you know, U.S.-led initiatives. Um, so I think it's kind of moving at an independent pace, and the United States moving forward has to kind of foster India's own evolution independently. And I think you're seeing increasingly, you know, you mentioned the Quad, which is a good, great example. Uh, and furthermore, in the maritime space, um, the Malabar exercise, which takes place uh, every year hosted by India, the United States. Uh, and then recently in the past, I think 2015, Japan joined as a permanent member. And then what was significant this year was that Australia was uh, invited for the first time since 2007. So you saw the quadrilateral, um, you know, the, the quad grouping in the maritime domain for the first time in, in a representation of the growing concerns about China's maritime rise. So I think that India is going to continue um, developing and, and, and reinforcing its relationships with the smaller Indian Ocean nations. But I think the other challenge for India too is that, you know, and I write about this as well, it has this real, this push and this pull. You know, we go back to the, the territorial versus the maritime uh, outlook. And so for India, it is very, it's been consumed so much by its northern, northwestern boundaries with that of Pakistan, but also China. And we've seen outbreak of skirmishes just in the last couple of years. Um, and most recently, you know, in the past year being pretty significant. And that's a real concern. So I think it, it's, India has been much slower, although I think it's gaining momentum because it is appreciating that it feels, many feel that it, it's being surrounded by China, not only on its northern boundaries, uh, but also in the maritime domain. And so trying to, uh, you know, when it comes to the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, for example, developing capabilities there, area uh, was A2AD, anti-access, area of denial um, in the event of, you know, something goes awry coming out of the Strait of Malacca, domain awareness, investing in radars, investing in greater intelligence sharing with other uh, Indian Ocean nations that has a long historical past with. So I think they're doing a, a series of different things very much on their own terms. And the United States trying to kind of bring them increasingly into the fold, but there's a hesitation, right? Because there's a deep history and India still has a strong relationship with Russia. At the same time, you know, Modi is trying to balance the relationship with China, uh, but recognizes too that it's it's delicate to say the least. And looking then at China's uh, partner Russia, uh, you dedicate time as as well um, to them in, in your book, where Russia is back in the Black Sea, the Baltic Sea. Uh, we already discussed uh, the Arctic, uh, even now uh, in Africa with a new base or port in Sudan. Uh, so what's the story with uh, Russia's resurgence? Yeah, I think, you know, it's important, again, to qualify Russia, right? Russia has had problems in its naval development programs, you know, and that looking at its aircraft carrier that was coming out of, um, that made the trip to Syria and then ultimately had to be tugboated back to port and it's run into kind of some, um, you know, overhaul issues. 
That being said, uh, since 2014, uh, the takeover of Crimea, it's been able to really solidify its maritime power in the Black Sea. And then it's used the solidification of its power in the Black Sea to project further south and that into the Mediterranean, establishing or reestablishing a more permanent presence in Tartus in Syria uh, with the outbreak of the civil war in Syria. And then from there, as you mentioned, uh, and that's why it's fascinating to see that it's kind of projecting further and further south with just in the last month, uh, establishing a base in Port Sudan with 300 military personnel, four warships, and so being much more of an you know, important player in the Red Sea. Again, it's not to say that they're going to you know, overtake the U.S. Navy uh, anytime soon, but I think they've been really smart about how they're investing in the small bases. But in addition to that, what Russia has indeed continued to invest in, again, it's had certain flops uh, and accidents, but it's continued to invest in its submarine program. And to, you know, to give a contrast example, they're currently developing around six different classes of submarines compared to the United States that's only uh, developing around one, uh, one class of submarines. So they see the stealth force as being much more effective. And this goes back to there's a maritime uh, strategic school called the Jeune École or the Young School, which the French adopted at the turn of the 19th century as having much smaller more maneuverable platforms where they could be, you know, relatively effective against larger great maritime powers um, at the turn of the 19th century. So I think continuing to invest in the submarine programs will, will enable Russia to still have a longer reach. And furthermore, I think the growing inter, you know, the DOD term, Department of Defense term, interoperability uh, that China and Russia are creating through these exercises, you know, th there's benefit in that we, there's a, you know, we learn, one learns, a country learns about what the other country uses for technology, what their ship platforms are like. So, you know, both China and Russia benefit from having these, you know, increased number of, of joint exercises in the maritime space. And maybe then to take a look, as you kind of just ended on that note of the relationship between uh, Russia and, and China, um, you know, what, what brings them together? You know, some have said that they have a common, common enemy, right, the West. So that brings them together. Uh, and some people have a different analysis of how close their relationship is. Uh, and in your book, you also say that at some future point, there's a potential for Russia and China to someday uh, butt heads over certain issues where, you know, China is maybe encroaching on, on Russian interests or, or vice versa. So uh, what are your thoughts? You know, how strong you feel their synergy or relationship is? And then what are some things down the line that could, that could uh, you know, drive a wedge between them? Yeah, the, it, it's a great question. And so I, one of my advisors in grad school, um, who's now sadly passed away, uh, Alan Walkman, and when he used to give a lecture, he used to compare the Sino-Russian relationship to, are you into classical music at all? A bit. I like the medieval stuff. <laughs> uh, to a fugue. And the fugue basically has, has repetition. So, you know, you, the, the music parts ways to be kind of independent, but then comes together, uh, you know, in a melodic choreo choreography and then parts and then comes back together. And I think it's such, a, it's such a great way to think about Russia and China's relationship over time, because as we know, they've had moments where they've really not seen eye to eye, but then yet they've had other moments where they're, you know, much more aligned. And I think right now they do indeed, and this is what I talk about too, there's a shared interest to really undermine a U.S.-led world order. And so that brings them closer together. For now. But down the road, I think, and there are places which I talk about too, especially in the conclusion, where there might be wedges to push China and Russia further apart, especially from a you know, US centric or a European centric standpoint, or even from a Japanese, where the Russians have interests that contradicts or goes in contrast to that of the Chinese. And you can look at one example, for example, uh, one example being Vietnam. 
that there are contested islands in the South China Sea um, that China very much claims, whereas Russia has a strong relationship with Vietnam going back, you know, decades and, and has a growing proximity in terms of a military-military relationship. So for right now, Russia's not really dipped into the South China Sea taking anyone's side per se, although kind of tacitly supporting China, but that could be one area. Another area, which is, you know, to go back to the Arctic, and this comes down to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And for right now, there's a lot of ice pack. And I forget the exact clause at the top of my head, um, but there's an ice pack that talks about, or sorry, there's a clause in, in the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea that talks about ice pack. And, but if the ice pack goes away, then there's going to be interpretation in terms of is it free international passage or is it territorial waters? And right now, Russia sees it as territorial waters, and so it controls certain parts of that northern sea route. If the ice goes away, China would, would say, well, there's no ice here anymore. This is free international passage. You don't, you don't necessarily control it. So there are points of tension, but that's, that's down the road right now. Um, but certainly something to think about from a strategic standpoint. I wanted to jump to Morocco uh, because you mentioned it in your book and it's been in the news uh, lately, Morocco, because um, you mentioned it as a particularly strategic uh, asset. It's, it's, it's location as I believe 20% of the world's trade passes by uh, Morocco. And we re we've recently seen a, a lot of developments where um, Morocco's sovereignty over West Sahara has been recognized. Uh, they've been normalizing relations with Israel. They just received uh, a quarter of a billion loan from World Bank, uh, a one billion dollar weapons deal from Washington. So you know all these things are are coming together. Um, and then it seemed, I think in your book you detailed how China was creeping in, and you know perhaps now the West is attempting to to slow that trend in you know in these different parts of the world here in Morocco. So you know what's your take on? Uh, Morocco and that part of the world. Yeah, it's a, so the Strait of Gibraltar, as we know, these maritime choke points are so strategic, important. But if you think about it, just from a trading and shipment, you know, and, and again, put Africa in the larger context, there are very few large ports in Africa that you can, you know, offload your ships and then send it to the rest of the continent. So Tangier. In Morocco is such a critical port, and that's why China has increasingly looked to it. China is also looking in Algeria, um, in other parts of North, northern Africa, certainly in, in Egypt. Russia, for that matter, too, is doing the same. And so I think the thinking is, hey, if we have another strong, big port in West Africa, Northwest Africa, That'll be important to kind of getting goods and transportation and other things into the continent. Um, because, you know, going back to Djibouti, Djibouti is one of the biggest jumping off points um, from a trade perspective into the rest of Africa, too. So having, you know, it's all about, if you think from an economic standpoint, diversifying your, your investments, but diversifying where you know, goods and cargo can be offloaded in the, it's time and money, you know, the more efficient we can be to get goods to where you, where they need to be all the better. And so that's why Morocco uh, will always be, you know, sitting at this opening of the Strait of Gibraltar is so important. You've mentioned the, the U S uh, in your book, you state you believe the U S for the uh, near term will remain a global superpower. Uh, I've uh, previously done an interview with academic Michael Beckley, uh, who, who wrote a book on that issue, who also believes uh, the same, that, you know, the U.S. Uh, global superpower won't be going away uh, anytime soon. Uh, how do you position uh, the U.S. in this new, you know, there's a lot of talk of the U.S. empire declining and, you know, China rising or, you know, together with Russia and the East. And so w where do you see the U.S. in, in all of this? Is it going to continue or are, are there huge threats to the U.S.? Yeah, I think, again, you know, we, we can't predict the future. As I like to joke, you know, about complaining about the weatherman, the weatherman sometimes doesn't get it right hours ahead of what, what, what's coming with a storm. So I think, you know, I always put out that caveat for sure. 
That being said, I think the United States moving forward, you know, th there's growing literature on the securitization or militarization of U.S. foreign policy. And, and that goes back to this, you know, looking at the United States footprint around the world for the past two, 20 years, uh, you know, being involved heavily in Afghanistan, Iraq, <clears throat> trying to pivot or whatever the term of art is to uh, Pacific Asia or the Indo-Pacific. So there's a real, you know, ongoing discussion and debate on top of, to cite again, more than 500 main operating bases around the world. That's very expensive. And what we've seen in the past, you know, four or more years for that matter, is that the United States and I get it, understandably, has been focused a lot on the security arm. But as I try to lay out in the book, it's not just about security. Security is an element. It's an important element, not to get me wrong. But a lot of what lies ahead in the future is very much geoeconomic. So I think for the United States and others to kind of think and invest in economic tools of statecraft that can enhance and improve the United States' standing and also investment capabilities around the globe, I think that's, that's half the battle. Because currently right now, um, you know, one of the interesting cases uh, that came up when I was traveling to Israel was looking at the port of Haifa. And, and the story that was told to me was that Israel as being, as we know, a very, you know, strong ally of the United States but what was told to me in terms of the Haifa wanted to expand uh, its port, uh, its terminal, because they were just backlogged with all the maritime uh, traffic and cargo coming and being offloaded to Israel. Uh, so they wanted to expand. So they wanted to, they put out, you know, tenders to expand the port and they reached out um, to some U.S. firms that could do reclamation, that could do expanding of the terminal. and they crickets. No one wanted to bid on the project. So it's okay. Well, all right, let's go to who really wants to bid on it. Of course, who, who wanted to bid on it was the Chinese. And so the Chinese bid on the port. Uh, and then fast forward to, you know, a couple of years ago, and there's, I think it was, it was a retired admiral. He came and visited and saw what was going on. And he said, oh, well, I wouldn't dock my fleet here now that the Chinese are controlling the port. And this then set things into a tizzy. Um, but it shows that, again, from an economic standpoint, the United States is not competing as readily. And so I think trying to come up with clever and innovative ways um, will be, you know, there, there's a lot to be said about soft power and economic investment. And a lot of these countries... Uh, you know, I think one of the statistics that's thrown out over the next decade or more, there's going to be something like $93 trillion in potential infrastructure projects. Um, so th there's, there's, real, there's real potential to take advantage. You brought to mind uh, the Blue Dot Network, which I think we heard a lot about uh, last year, which was seemed to be kind of like America's uh, answer response to Belt and Road. I haven't he heard much of it about it lately. What, what's your, what are your thoughts on the Blue Dot Network? No, and I, I haven't heard much about it either. You know, I know one of the one of the programs that that in the last couple of years they were trying to um, repurpose funds from what was previously OPIC. Um, to then this IFDC, I think, which is the International Financial Development Corporation, to the tune of a $6 billion budget as a way to do more investment, U.S. investment. Um, but even that, uh, I think there's kind of turmoil or they just didn't get off the ground the way they would have liked. Um, so I, I, haven't, I haven't seen much in the way. Uh, of the United States. And again, I mean, if you look at the state, U.S. State Department's budget, uh, it's been, you know, it's declined over the past couple of years uh, pretty significantly. So I think that's, you know, further hamstrung the United States. And there's a question that, that I often ask my guests because, you know, we, we do, we're talking about empires uh, and war and we, we see throughout history that, you know, peace is kind of the default state and, and war eventually always... Uh, 
breaks out. And, you know, I wanted to get your thoughts on the chances for the Thucydides trap to go live. Uh, you know, Graham Allison has written about this, you know, for, for the uh, potential for the U.S. to go to war with uh, Russia and or uh, China. Um, as you said, you've written on, on how China and Russia have been developing their geoeconomic uh, investments, which then warrant the security protection uh, of the sea lanes uh, and then sea lanes becoming more congested uh, and then increasing the chances for an accident, uh, a misstep. Uh, and we're already almost kind of, you know, we could be in a world war uh, scenario. You've got Taiwan, you've got South China Sea. There's so many flashpoints. And so, you know, even Iran, I, th I think they said that if Iran shut down uh the, the the area that they control, you know, the economy would, would, would collapse. And so, I mean, what are your thoughts on a potential? And it seems that most of the guests that I've been uh, asking about this, they, they tend to think that we're not going to launch into a huge conflagration, which would be good good news. So what are your thoughts of a, a new Thucydides trap? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question. And, and you know, I think the the bottom line for me is, Yes, let's hope not. Let's hope there's not the outbreak of a war. Um, and I think, you know, I'll put a plug in for my colleagues at NDU uh, who recently just came out of the book on Thucydides, actually, um, by Jay Parker and Andrew Novo, um, where they challenge Graham Allison's Thucydides trap um, through a much, you know, bigger, robust analysis looking at Thucydides and his writing and the history. Um, so I think, I mean, I, I certainly understand and appreciate the argument. Uh, and furthermore, I mean, you're exactly correct. I think there are a lot of flashpoints that make people very nervous. Uh, it, you know, and you rightfully cite that of Taiwan as a real concern. Um, the South China Sea is another concern. Um, Iran also being concerned. I mean, the thing, though, that I've written about previously on Iran is that... <clears throat> Shutting down, even though, you know, it's not to say Iran's been a, certainly a spoiler and a difficult bad actor in the region, but if Iran were to shut down the Strait of Hormuz, it would suffer um, pretty heavily uh, from not being able to have oil and gas enter and exit the region. So I, a lot of times it's, it's bluster because then it stirs up everybody else. And again, it's not to say they're not, they are a threat. So I, I certainly appreciate that. But I also, you know, in, in the, since 1979, uh, there's one instance where they mined the Strait of Hormuz during the tanker wars of the 1980s, uh, which had certain damage, but it never, you know, the Strait of Hormuz has never been shut down. And I think it's for that reason. Uh, and hopefully I'm not, not proven wrong otherwise. So I think, I think, you know, but then if you look at someone like John Mearsheimer, um, who, who looks at rise and fall of great powers and, and declining powers, uh, that's when you get certain vulnerability in the system. And I think, I think that's going to be the challenge right now is that when there are pockets uh, or a vacuum that is left by the United States, I mean, case in point, just this week, um, the United States announcing that it's pulling out from Somalia. Um, so what does that mean for, you know, the Horn of Africa and the politics there at the, you know, the Baba Mandeb? It remains to be seen. So I think long and short is, yes, let's, let's, I hope there's not a world war or something more significant and that, you know, we can continue to kind of manage the, the global commons, if you will, a free and open Indo-Pacific um, but I think at the same time, that being said, you know, there is increased aggression on the high seas on the part of Russia and China, as you point out, as I point out in the book, too. There have been several instances, um, as I wrote about recently, too, where, you know, Russia is more aggressive, China is more aggressive. And the concern is that that could escalate into something much greater. All right. Um, there, there was a really interesting quote uh, from your book based on an interview I think you obtained from a European official uh, that said, quote, China is trying to build the next century. The United States built the last century while France and Great Britain built the century before that. China will write its own rules. They won't be threatened by the U.S. with development because they control the global system. Uh, Brie is more than a project. 
It is a conquest of resources. That's why they have a need for military bases to secure the transport of these resources. Uh, for China, investment in Djibouti, for example, is nothing. It's just 1% of the larger Belt and Road project, end quote. So a lot of people talk about, uh, I, I know, Parag Khan and, and others, that the 21st century is the Asian century. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that was that was quoting a, a French diplomat, um, and so I think you know for him certainly putting that in perspective of seeing uh, China's rise, and and it's true. I mean, we and this is the, this will be the interesting thing to see if China is able to weather um, the current economic volatility. And I think even in the last couple of weeks, there was kind of vibrant debate on Twitter about the Belt and Road Initiative, what's happening, and certainly its lending has declined. Boston University has put out some really good numbers. Um, but, you know, I think when it comes to the maritime space, which I focus on, there, you know, the Costco shipping again, some other Chinese firms, it's, it's a little bit easier to kind of manage these port infrastructure or port networks um, that ensures that they're continuing to push towards greater efficiency, um, greater economic solvency. But I think as pointed out, you know, previously too, this has a direct spillover effect into other elements. You know, one of the things I, I frequently cite uh, is, are the submarine uh, cable networks. And China is currently laying um, many of them. And I look again back at Djibouti, uh, where a tiny country, there are around eight uh, submarine cables that come up from the, the ocean's floor into Djibouti and then jump off. So I think, you know, it, it gets at how you can start with one project, but if you're the main country that's there, um, you know, there's there's possibility for it to spill over into other elements. And I think, you know, just seeing how, again, to use the example of Israel, the United States not, and I get it, you know, there's a lot of risk involved in these projects, but figuring out how to invest more um, from a U.S. or European perspective, or J the Japanese too have been much more involved in the Indo-Pacific and the Indian Ocean specifically of investing, of trying to counteract China. But for the moment, in a lot of these developing countries, China's the main, you know, the main player in town. And so has been able to take advantage of that for better or worse. I think some countries are certainly frustrated with what they're getting. Um, but when there's not necessarily an alternative, um, you, you, there, there they are kind of ready and willing to, to build and, and do various projects. All right. Uh, as we wind down, um, is there any other issue that I that I failed to bring up or, or stress that you think uh, should be mentioned uh, in relation to to your book um, to rule Eurasia's waves, uh, as well as any uh, final thoughts for us? You know, I think just to hit on the the cyber piece again um, to give it more context than just the case of Djibouti, but the you know one of the things I point out is there are approximately two hundred submarine. Uh, cables that traverse the globe that connect 95% of all the data that we receive via the internet, uh, telecommunications. So very significant. And this is going to be a space to increasingly look at, certainly because we're all, we're all connected to the internet. But to think only 200 cables connect the entire world. It's pretty amazing. And then you look at a country like Russia, it only has uh, two cables that run in and outside of the country. Uh, so again, Djibouti has around seven or eight. Um, Russia has two. They just completed an agreement uh, to run a, a cable from with a Finnish company uh, just last year in 2019. Uh, there's some interesting reporting out in the last week or so on, on China and the Faroe Islands, uh, an autonomous republic uh, tied to Denmark. So I think these submarine cables are going to be another fascinating, um, you know, element of this maritime great power competition that not everybody fully appreciates. What China is doing right now are laying these again makes good business sense. You know, they have what they call the peace uh, cable, which is the Pakistan East Africa connect to Europe cable, or the Sea We Me, which is Southeast uh, Asia. Middle East, Western Europe cable that they've already successfully lined through most 
if not from uh, Marseille, France, through the Mediterranean, down to Djibouti, through the Maldives and over to Southeast Asia. Because it go, you know, as, as a student of history, um, as you know, one of the interesting comparisons to that is the British All Red Cable um, in 1902, I think, where the British successfully laid the first trans, you know, continental cable that was able to connect its various outlying um, colonies together through, through the telegraph. So pretty significant. And the Chinese are doing similar way. Private corporations are doing a similar thing. Google, uh, Amazon, trying to figure out how do we create these resilient uh, lines in the case that the infrastructure is broken or you just have some sort of information blackout. And that, you know, the cyber domain is the future. All right. Yeah, that's very interesting uh, going uh, forward. And so you're on Twitter uh, and you do publish articles for various publications. Uh, I was reading one on War on the Rocks recently and you, you give lectures and interviews people can find on YouTube. Is there any website or project you'd like uh, to let us know about? This is this is the big one for right now, but always projects are coming in down the line. And I think what's great about any book project, as you know, there's so many great offshoots. So more to follow in the maritime space. And as I like to say too, I'm a, a saltwater evangelist. Uh, I think giving the saltwater perspective, the maritime um, vantage point, we're able to kind of unlock and see politics in a different way. All right. I highly recommend listeners follow Dr. Gresh on Twitter. It's a great resource um, and get his book to rule uh, Eurasia's waves. Uh, I only recommend material that I personally have read or stand behind or feel is high quality and I definitely uh, recommend it. And so uh, thank you for being on Geopolitics and Empire. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.